Our preacher this afternoon is the Reverend Jacob Smith. He's the senior clergyman of the Parish of Calvary St. George's in Manhattan in New York City. Uh, He comes to us by way of the Navajo Reservation in Arizona, several stops in between, a graduate of Trinity Seminary, and again coming to us from New York City. He is a faithful and longtime contributor to the Mockingbird blog, and his church uh, will be hosting once again the Mockingbird Conference uh, in April. He will also be our preacher for the rest of the week, so you can also catch him on Thursday and Friday. No pressure, Jacob. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, it is a real honor and privilege to be here with all of you today, and uh, a real honor and privilege to stand in this pulpit, a pulpit where uh, men that I have a deep respect for have preached the justification of God to the ungodly for years, and so I do not take this, uh, this privilege and this opportunity lightly, and I want to thank uh, Dean Limehouse for uh, the invitation and privilege to be here. I am. I come from uh, originally from Arizona and the Navajo Indian Reservation. That's where I lived for eight years. My parents weren't missionaries. They were hippies. Uh, (laughs) They were out there going to change the world. And then we moved to the southwest corner of the state, Yuma, Arizona. Maybe you've heard of it, 310 to Yuma, eight miles from the Mexican border. And then after uh, being at seminary, uh, where I went and uh, lived right across the street from Canon Joe Gibbs, who is uh, him and his wife are uh, some of our dearest friends in seminary, uh, we uh, were called to New York City, where I've served there for the last uh, almost six years now, and uh, two very historic parishes. We have Calvary Church, which is on uh, Park and 21st, and um, it's uh, where Alcoholics Anonymous was actually started, and the Oxford groups, and the 12 steps were written there under the leadership of the Reverend uh, Sam Shoemaker. And then uh, St. George's Church, which is actually the second continuous uh, continually worshiping congregation in New York City. Uh, we've been, uh, we were originally a uh, chapel of Trinity Cathedral and then um, uh, became our own parish and we're celebrating our 200th anniversary this year. And so St. George's Church. Um, and so it is, but it's a real privilege and honor to be here. Uh, my text for today is uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15 through 20. And what I'm going to be doing over the next couple of days is looking at some themes that come out of Lent in these particular scriptures. And the first theme that I'm going to talk about today is uh, the theme of reconciliation and forgiveness. And then next, tomorrow, I'm going to speak a little bit about salvation and how that all works. And then three, I'm going to be talking about why you should believe it and how come it's, 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 not, it's not just a feeling. That's not why we're here. We're not here for a feeling. It's more than a feeling. It's actually historical and it's true. So those are the things that I'm going to be talking about. And, uh, and so uh, if you will follow along or listen. And here we go. Matthew chapter 18 beginning at the 15th verse. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, as I said, I chose this reading today because it deals with the Lenten theme of reconciliation. And our our reading today, the reading that I chose, is an interesting one because it's one that's oftentimes taken out of context and completely misunderstood, especially by Christians. For example, the last verse in our reading today, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there amongst them. Well, that's oftentimes used by Christians as kind of a sort of self-justification for small turnouts at church events, you know? (laughs) I know we were hoping for 80 at our amazing Harvest Festival, but only seven showed up. You know, that's great, but wherever two or three are gathered, hey, you know? True, Christ is present where two or three are gathered in his name, but this is completely taken out of context. And what I want to do is put this back in its context and explain to you what it all means. (laughs) In about 20 minutes. Anyway, what I I want to do today in this sermon is place it back in its context and demonstrate that this passage, as opposed to providing a podium for any sort of self-justification, which is our natural fallback position, actually articulates to us the importance and centrality of forgiveness and reconciliation in every Christian community. Our reading opens up today with Jesus saying, If a brother sins against you, if someone in the church sins against you, notice Jesus doesn't say here, if a member of the world sins against you. Jesus is specifically teaching here about how we deal with our own. And yet, even when this passage is understood about our own, this passage is still misunderstood. I knew a guy in college who was living in an intentional Christian community, which can be a nightmare for a lot of people. And it turned into a nightmare for him because he was constantly being confronted all the time, you know, about his room, about what he was doing, what he, was, what he wasn't doing. And he was constantly being confronted all the time about his life by totally imperfect Christians. And so the truth is is that now whenever you speak to him about anything, he's immediately on the defense. He's on the guard. He reaches for his holster. And unfortunately, there's an attitude, especially when this passage is read, that emerges within the church, which we have actually, the church, has conveyed to the world. That we're either perfect, you know, and, and we know what's going on, or maybe, possibly at one time morally neutral, but... Now, you know, because of a little bit of Jesus juice, because of an infused or imparted righteousness, I've got it going on. And let me tell you what's right and what's wrong. And by God, get out of line, and we're going to put you back in it. In regards to this attitude, I often think of that great painting by Grant Wood, American Gothic. You know, with the two individuals who embody the standoffish American pietistic ideal. You know, get in my way, get in our way, get out of line, and we will righteously stab you with our pitchfork. <laughs> Yet this opening sentence gives us a profound insight into the community which we belong. It gives us a profound insight into the church Catholic to which we belong. If your brother sins against you, the church is anything but sinless. 
truth is, is that it's filled with some real jerks. And I'm sure we all know a few. I mean, not me, of course, but, uh, you know. This is the truth. And this is my first point. And we need to understand this. The church is a redeemed community. It's a holy community. And it is a forgiven community. But nonetheless, and let us never forget this, lest we be disappointed when it lets us down. The church is filled with hypocrites. It is filled with imperfect people. It is filled with sinners like you and me. Jesus says it. If another member of the church, if your brother or sister sins against you, yet when we forget that we too are sinners... We pull this passage out of its context and in small groups and in churches across the country, we oftentimes use it in order to kill our own. However, placing it back within the context of Matthew chapter 18, you see that our reading today is part of an overall teaching about humility and not being the cause of offense. It is not a word for us to go out into the world and bash those who aggravate you. Rather, it is for those within the church who have clearly and consistently behaved contrary to the teachings of Christ. And because it's a word to specific people who have been involved in great scandal, not just someone who hasn't paid you back last week for lunch, we hear that it is not good to let a member of the church run rampant over other members and negate the biblical standard. Because unlike the world, where it's nobody's business but my own, we believe, actually, that the waters of baptism and our common confession in Christ, there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, we believe that those things actually unite us. And so therefore, as a body, it is our business when great scandal or biblical standards are ignored. But this is my second point. Our text today is not about you making the world right. Rather, our text today is about how forgiveness and restoration to God through faith in Christ actually manifests itself in the church. This is for us a brief explanation of that section earlier in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord's Prayer where we ask God to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Therefore, as we read this section as a part of all of Matthew chapter 18, and I would encourage you to do this, we actually see something. We hear something. As we read this in light of the whole chapter, we learn that the task of the greatest one is that of the weakest one who believing in his or her own sin confesses his or her own sin and loves and restores their fellow Christian brother and sister back to God in reconciliation. This is what it's all about as a Christian community. We move forward by looking backwards on our knees. This is the ministry of the church. Our primary posture before God is never one of worship, as Ernst Kaysamon once said. 
It is on our knees. It is in penitence. This is the ministry of the church. Binding sin and loosing the repentant by word and sacrament and restoring all people back to God and Christ. So then we see, this whole text, we see that while it is important that Christians gather for prayer, and that whenever two or three are gathered in his name, he is in the midst of them. Indeed, he is in your midst and closer than you could possibly imagine, even when you are alone. What this passage is actually all about is the importance of forgiveness, and how that forgiveness actually begins to take place. And this actually set Jesus apart from his Jewish contemporaries. You see, in those days, in both matters of religious worship and legal matters, Judaism required ten adult males present for anything to be binding. However, Jesus flips all of that on its head in this passage. He demolishes both the sexist and quantitative distinctions and makes the issue not about male or female, or about how many, but rather he makes the whole issue about whose name you are under. Whose name you are under. Just a little confession. As a, as a minister, especially in New York City, I find this enormously comforting. In New York City, oftentimes amongst professionals, the first question that is often asked after your name is, is what do you do? And in New York City, the next question, when you say that you're a clergyman, the next question people ask is, how many people go to your church? Well, for a clergyman, especially in New York City, this is, this is, uh, it's a sick question. It's wrong on so many levels. And, and, and it's so wrong that I now respond by saying, including me, a seven. (laughs) And we're all coming along nicely. This is my third point, and I'll wrap up with this. It is never about the numbers. It's never about the numbers. It's never about about you. But rather, it's always about the name. It is always about the name. Because all the people in the world, and all of our self-righteousness in the world, cannot justify you before God. But as St. Peter says in the book of Acts, it's all about the name. And there is but one name in heaven and on earth by which a person is saved. A person is forgiven. A person is justified. And where Jesus has placed his name, there he is present. And he has placed his name in very specific places. He's placed his name in the preaching of the word where the gospel, the good news that Jesus, through his blood, justifies the ungodly. And he has placed his name in the sacrament of baptism, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he has placed his name in the bread and the wine. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And where two or three are gathered in his name, where he has placed his name, Anything you ask, God, save me. God, forgive me. Lord, have mercy. It will be done for you by the Father in heaven. Because it is in those things, word and sacrament, 
that Jesus has clearly placed his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit given power to bind and loose and transform people like you and me from Gentiles and tax collectors to sons and daughters of the living God. Amen. Let me uh, now give us all a lunch blessing. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, rest upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen.